Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, today my guest is Alan Milwicky, and uh, he's here to talk about a fascinating. For sure, a study which is neo Nazism in uh, America. And uh, I, I always ask my guests, how did you find Cover Trust to study this, this subject? Um, well, I, I came to study this uh, well from a very bizarre route. I, um, I didn't start out um, studying history, I didn't start out as an academic. Um, after I graduated college, I spent about five and a half years working in television production. And on my final show, which was a show for the History Channel, uh, we were getting into sort of investigating, you know, prison gangs and, and how they operated. And I got so fascinated with how law enforcement, the FBI, uh, prison guards uh, and other officials track and monitor white supremacy groups in America that I would spend hours on the phone with them after work or on weekends. And I would just I would just got so fascinated by how they how they track and and monitor these things, the, these groups, uh, particularly with inside prisons, that at some point I was talking to a prison guard in, in Connecticut and he basically said to me, go back to school, get a master's degree in a research intensive discipline and figure out why this stuff still exists. And less than two months later, I was enrolled at Seton Hall University with the intent of studying how and why uh, neo-Nazism proliferated in America um, and then from there, uh, my plan was to, you know, go work for the federal government, but I, I fell in love with academia and I went to, uh, went to American university. I started at American university in, in 2011 to get my PhD. And while I was there, I got trained and cleared by, uh, by the air force. Um, I worked as a consultant, uh, for about two years, uh, until I made my final shift to, uh, as an intelligence analyst until I made my final shift to being fully blown academic and started to teach and research. And uh, in 2019, and the end of 2019, I achieved my doctorate at American University under professors uh, Alan Lickman and, and Peter Kuznick, uh, where I've literally been studying uh, the origin and proliferation of um, modern neo-na- or neo-Nazism, or what I now call Americanized Nazism um, in the United States from about 1950, unfortunately, all the way up to today. So how do you draw on about doing research? Do you meet neo-Nazis yourself personally, or do you just go through our No, no, there's, um, well, I mean, when I worked at the television show, I did spend uh, three weeks on the phone with the then pastor of the Jesus Christ Christian Aryan Nations Church out in Idaho, you know, you know, getting well, information out of them. What was that like? <laughs> uh, let's just say, uh, um, one of my skills I developed very early on in life was being able to uh, to BS people. So it was very good that I was able to, you know, hold my own in this sort of discussion. And 
um, it got to the point, I mean, I was working for the show, so I had a burner cell phone, you know, it wasn't my own yeah. phone. I wasn't using my own name. Uh, it got to the point where he was so interested in the show where he was just calling me up on his own to talk. So like every other day for about three weeks, I was on the phone with him. Uh, what was and, your impression of the but, guy when you talked to him? I mean, the, the scariest thing about these guys is that unless you know who they are and what they're about, they, they don't seem irregular. You know, they don't seem abnormal. They're um, the common misconception about, you know, white supremacists or neo-Nazis either today or in the past is that they're all, you know, living out in the countryside, you know, uh, tattoos all over the place, missing front teeth and, you know, with a sister wife. And, you know, that's and that demographic does exist. But the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, they're they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're educated, they're pastors, they're preachers, they're, you know, the, the main subject of my research is uh, is a pastor, you know, and um, the whole. It's 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 like that a misleading a, comfort that we think that it's a that misleading a, comfort, yeah. I think, that yeah. Now that must be a huge platform to be a neo-Nazi on being a pastor, I can imagine, reaching out to well, all those people. Yeah, uh, I mean, and that's the thing is it's also protected by things like freedom of speech and freedom of religion, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, the main subject of my research is a, uh, was a pastor, he, I mean, he died in 1970, uh, was Wesley Swift. Um, he was the chief progenitor of what's called uh it's a denomination of christianity called a fundamentalist christianity called the Christ, uh, christian identity he didn't invent it he just made it popular um or popular among the fringes and flittered in and out of the mainstream of america between basically the end of the 40s up until he died in 1970. and while swift is a relative unknown um his successors aren't you know, like most people in America have heard of the group, the Aryan Nations, you know, uh, yeah. that's that's yeah, that's a pretty large white supremacy group that existed for quite a few decades. The founder of the Aryan Nations was a man named Richard Gernt Butler, who quit his job at Raytheon to serve under Swift as an understudy as a pastor and considered himself the spiritual heir of Wesley Swift and moved the moved the movement from where Swift was based out of Southern California to Idaho, which ended up being like a hotbed for, you know, white supremacy or uh, far-right extremism all the way up to today. So the real only knowledge I got about neo-Nazis is from the Blues Brothers scene when they drive across the bridge. Right. But, uh, but like, if I remember, I watched something a while ago that there was a Nazi party during World War II, but how big were they? And there was this stuff on neo-Nazism? No, the, if you talk like there was the like the German American Bund, right? Yeah. There were there were Nazi supporters in America. Like Madison Square Garden had a sold out rally in in like January of 1939, you know, where there was pictures of and this video is available online. It's it's like a simple Google search, um, and it's labeled as a pro America rally. Uh, there's a picture of uh, like a big banner of George Washington in the back with a swastika above his head. You know, there were, I mean, it wasn't a large part of America, but there were Americans who did support Nazis. Um, and I think a large part of that comes out of the intense fear that this country was developing for communism, right? 
Uh, and um, the Soviet Union was a thing then. Uh, and we had just come out of uh, our worst depression in history. And the last thing we wanted to do was, or at least as a nation, I would imagine the last thing the country wanted to do was consider reformatting our economy again. Um, so there was a large push to be like, no, the Soviets are a real enemy. And by that point, uh, the conflation of communism and Judaism was already really solid because of first Henry Ford, who wrote his or William James uh, William J Cameron who wrote who wrote for Ford, the international Jew, the world's foremost enemy, and then and Ford uh, was a Nazi Hitler, too, right? Well, he, he definitely he definitely enjoyed uh, um, he was definitely an anti semite. That's for sure. His book was the or his magazine was and the Dearborn Independent was the international Jew, the world's foremost enemy, and Hitler ripped off quite a bit of what Ford wrote, and in fact in 1936. I believe he was awarded the highest, Henry Ford was awarded the highest honor a non-Nazi citizen can get. And there's a big, I mean, again, there's newspaper articles about this and Hitler's quoted saying things along the lines of, you know, uh, I venerate Henry Ford. He, he even call, he even goes so far as to like to, to Germanize him and calls him Heinrich Ford. You know, there's a lot of positive uh, commentary that um, Hitler has for Henry Ford. That's for sure. No. I know your studies from 1950s and onwards, but were neo-Nazis back then aware of Operation Paperclip and did they try to get in touch with some of the oh. Nazis working for NASA after World there, War II? There wouldn't be, um, we wouldn't even call them neo-Nazis at that point. At that point, they were just Nazis, right? The people who were in Madison Square Garden, there was nothing neo, right? It's not yeah. new. It was, it was just Nazis. Um, as far as I know, as far as I've, I've I've researched and as far as I've, you know, I've heard in lectures and, you know, and conferences I've been to, um, the founding of what we would now call the neo-Nazi movement in America, um, although in my own research, I sort of twist around the name a little bit um, or provide a new label for it, but I can get into that later. But what we call neo-Nazism has very little to do with anything going on in the Third Reich other than uh, the, the uniforms, some of the ceremony and the rampant anti-Semitism, right? There are, there are several historians. So as, as to your question about Operation Paperclip, the answer is probably a hard no. Um, but, uh, according to a lot of historians who study, you know, a lot of Nazi supporters in America, particularly George Lincoln Rockwell and his American Nazi party, uh, that he farms, uh, I believe in the fifties that, they wouldn't be considered Nazis by Third Reich standards, right? They, the, only, the only thing that they shared in common with the Nazis is the anti-Semitism, the paraphernalia and the uniforms. So they were fully American Nazis, right? They weren't, it's a different thing. And that's sort of why I think that the label neo-Nazism becomes a little bit too all-encompassing or um, mis, uh, mislabeling because it's, you know, and again, it's, the, the labeling of it is, is problematic on the face of it, but I think it's more appropriate to, to call them uh, Americanized Nazis because they, what they really do, that in, they take Nazism and make it fully blown American. It's a fully American movement, right? It is not, it is not European at all. It is, a, it is a fully American movement, right? And there are other branches of Nazism, right? I mean, Nazism, you know, there are still Nazi supporters all around the world. Yeah. 
But what Rockwell and then what eventually Swift do is they take they take Nazism and put it ideologically into an American context. If you're Rockwell in the American Nazi Party, or if you're Swift, they put it into a theological con uh, um, a theological um, like bracket, like a theological label, uh, and you're basically talking about uh, Christian identity and other. Uh, religious justifications for Nazism, like calling Hitler a prophet and all sorts of other stuff. That's really the theological justifications for Americanized Nazism is really where my research is you, focused on. You talked a little bit about this, but can you go more in depth about the sure. biggest difference between a neo-Nazi versus that a German Nazi, if you will call it that way? Uh, the, the major difference between the... Um, the you mentioned the, the uniform and semitism, but... Well, again, like we and, and under that umbrella heading of that Americanized Nazism, right? It's an um, yeah. umbrella heading. We have we have two groups, right? We have the ones that believe the ideology of Nazism or what they perceive the ideology of Nazism to be about, and the ones who are following it theologically. These are the ones who, um, the theological ones, are the ones who believe um, who combine Nazism with American hypernationalism and Christian fundamentalism. They make Nazism into a religious movement, right? Nazism becomes religious. It becomes theologically based. It is based in the Bible, and they trace uh, uh, Hitler and all of his uh, his ideas all the way back through biblical history till time began. Um, the ones we're speaking of here is the those Americanized Nazism, like the American Nazi Party. These ones who are more ideological in the sense that you know true Nazism. Right, ein Volk, ein Reich, ein Führer. Nothing was above the state, right? So these Nazis tend to not be religious. They can be, but they tend not to be. Okay, that is similar to the Third Reich, right? But the situations in Germany are not the uh, in the 1930s are not the situations in America in the 1950s. The the atmosphere of surrounding countries is not the atmosphere. Nothing is similar. Between the uh, between the atmosphere, between the origination, between um, any of the real grievances that the Third Reich had um, made up or whatever, versus what people like Rockwell had with America and all of that, the real beef that uh, um, uh, Rockwell and the American Nazi Party had was simply that Jews existed, right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much as far as the connection, I would argue. And again, there are other historians uh, who, who have who have read and who have stated, um, uh, who have done more research into the real American Nazi Party stuff, who have stated point blank that this is the the the, the comparison sort of uh, sort of ends there. So, do the Nazis work with the KKK? Uh, they're kind of similar hate groups, right? But do you, they go together you, or would, do they? Mm, um, no, in fact, actually, uh, about an hour from where I live, there was a Klan rally in 2014 that was pretty much put down or tried to be put down by neo-Nazis. Hmm. They're not the same things, right? Um, if we're talking about, and this gets to, again, my whole encapsulation or my, my new encapsulation of how to study white supremacy, right? And it's it's something that I've I, I've honestly myself just, re just, you know, with my dissertation and my, uh, you know, my current book work and just sort of started to conceive of is that if we look at white supremacy as this all encompassing movement, right? Yeah. The way that you, the way that I divide it up, right? And this is still a work in progress is you get 
neo-Nazi or you get Americanized Nazism, right? Which is those people who I've been talking about already. Yeah. And then you get, you also get here, you get white nationalists, right? These are people like your clansmen. These are people who uh, are very, very hyper-nationalistic, which is different from patriotism. They're hyper-nationalistic. They believe America to be, you know, the greatest and always the greatest. And, you know, they're open and, uh, and forthright about their beliefs about the other, be it black people, be it Latino, be it Jews. Uh, these tend to be uh, groups like the Klan, right? Could they be religious? Sure. Do they have to be? No. This is where you also get into that whole, you can get into that whole sort of um, veneration of Norse mythology stuff. And then the third group is, is sort of lowercase systemic racism, right? And these are the people who are like, I'm not racist, but right? The yeah. people who will say like, I'm not racist, but you have to admit, you know, Jews control all the world's banks or I'm not racist, mm. but you have to admit whatever. And anyone who uses that, that's that sort of systemic. And this is within the subheading of white supremacy. This is that systemic racism, that white anti other that has been and still is a part of the fabric of American sociopolitics and culture. So those are three different groups. So white nationalist Klansmen and neo-Nazis, there is overlap, but they're, they're not the same thing. So how do they in, have an, how do they have certain neo-Nazis have a certain influence in America today? As, or is it easy to go on about recruiting people to, in America? Well, I can, I can tell you that at one of the schools I teach at, there was a flyer um, for the American identity movement, which is like posted right on the, uh, you know, on the library bulletin board about a year and a half ago, posted right there. Um, wow. And it said protect American workers, which sounds good because unfortunately these guys in terms of recruitment are great at coded language. And it just so happened that I happened to walk into the library. All these students are walking past it, don't know, or looking at it. And, you know, again, protect American workers. Sounds like a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I knew and I saw it, I saw the symbol, I saw the, you know, the word identity and it triggered something in my head. And I was like, I know this, this is the guys, this was actually members of the Christian identity movement, right? Mm -hmm. This is actually like in, in, in my backyard here, you know, and I've, I've seen people driving around with three percenter tags and oath keeper tags and all these other militia groups that, yeah. you know, uh, parade themselves or hide themselves behind this blanket of, of nationalism or they claim patriotism, but it's really nationalism. It's not the same thing. Um, and uh, yeah, there, and, Look, if there's one thing I've learned about um, any group that is a extremist group based uh, that founds itself on racism, they are always unoriginal. They're always building off something. They're always taking from something. So a lot of the stuff that's being said um, by these organizations today is stuff that that's been said by by Swift or Rockwell or any of these guys who came before them. Right? It's not original. There's nothing new. Like they're the only thing different between what's going on now really versus what was going on in the 1950s is social media, right? And the heightened distrust of both politics and, uh, and news media. That's, that's really the thing that makes it significantly different. So let's go back to where you started your study. So why, why the 1950s? Why did, why, and what is so special about the 1950s to start studying there? Is well, it just that you're, is it the equality movement coming on or is it something 
Is that why you started in the 50s? There's, there's, a, there's a few things. Uh, one, because uh, Swift was my major focus. Wesley Swift was my major focus. When I, like I, I found this guy and I just sort of chased him down a rabbit hole. Um, and it, came, it became clear to me that there was no organization uh, or very few organizations that were, you know, uh, right-wing white supremacy organizations between 1950 and 1970 that this man wasn't either associated with, founded, was a preacher for, provided money for. There was no uh, no organization. Whether it was uh, he found he actually created two uh, two versions of his own Ku Klux Klan. Um, the uh, the militia movement, uh, the Minutemen, the California Rangers, the National States Rights Party, you know, the Christian, all of this. So why I went back to this period was because the first known thing about Swift is in 1946, really, when he first starts his own church in Los Angeles. And that's that was where I began this. But to answer your broader question, why the 50s and why this, why this, why the uh, the 60s and into this uh why the 1950s and 60s? Because I think it's fair to argue that uh, this group of uh, domestic terrorists, this group of extremists are reactionary, right? Um, there has to be something for them to point to that we're angry about. And in the 1950s, you start to see this, like America sort of recasting itself, not just as a Protestant nation, but as a Judeo-Christian nation, right? Because of the Holocaust, arguably, America starts to, at least American religious leaders, start to talk about, you know, the inclusion of, of, of Jews into, into the American religious fabric. America starts to talk about itself as a tri-religious nation, Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. And Swift and his guys uh, see that as a poisoning of the well. And so he rises up as a religious leader in a counter to that uh, poisoning of the religious movement. And in the 1950s, most of what he discusses is about Jews. A Christian identity is centered on uh, the premise that Jews are the literal children of the devil, right? The literal children of the devil. Um, when the mood of the nation starts to shift towards civil rights with Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 and the civil rights movement taking off in the late 1950s into the 1960s, Swift's rhetoric starts to adapt to that. And while Jews are still the centerpiece, he starts to attack black Americans as well, right? He calls black Americans foot soldiers of, uh, of the Jews, right? And black people are condemned uh, just as heavily, well, not just as heavily, but almost as heavily as Jews are. But the focus of his sermons, I mean, he goes after Dr. King like crazy. Uh, it's, uh, uh, he's interviewed by the FBI twice because of things he said about uh, the president, about, about JFK at the time. Uh, nothing is hap nothing happens because again he's somewhat protected because he is a preacher, and there is no direct tie to anything that happens that can be put back on Swift. However, you know, combing through you know declassified FBI docs and looking at different avenues, you know, I found some pretty pretty significant connections that you know almost could have altered the course of American history. Uh, you know, a couple of his disciples attempted. Or we're planning to attempt to assassinate Dr. King years before he was assassinated. Uh, one of his disciples, Oren Potito, uh, was arrested by the FBI attempting to blow up uh, or to dynamite Ole Miss, which was the first school to integrate a black person in the South, J. 
James Meredith. Yeah. You know, so there are some significant events. Swift is never, uh, you know, legally tied to it. But then it, it becomes the question of if this is where this guy got this idea and he is an ordained minister of Swift's church, the connection is tangible. Hmm. Right. So. But how big was he in, how big was Swift in the 50s? And I want, I want that kind of platform to the use to get his, because there were no social media back then, right? But you had radio, you had television. How did oh, he yeah. get his, He's, how did he get his person, voice? He, start, he, he started on the radio. Swift started on the radio. Um, but um, to answer your first bit, it's important to remember that this was a fringe movement, right? This was a fringe movement, but that doesn't mean it wasn't, um, it wasn't a prominent fringe movement, doesn't, and the fringe always affects the mainstream, right? So uh, his church membership may not have been in like the tens of thousands or one of those like mega churches or whatever, but through the network, he helps to create his message or the message that he's spe his spreading permeates the entire country through his disciples that leave his church you know, through his connections to things like the National States Rights Party, through, uh, you know, like the riots that happened in St. Augustine, uh, civil rights riots that happened there. Uh, one of his disciples is one of the instigators of it, Conrad Lynch, you know, so the, the reach is is astronomical. And um, uh, even admirals, uh, an, an admiral, a, former, a retired admiral named, Crom uh, I forget his first name, but Cromelin, Rear Admiral Cromelin, tried to run for office um, under the Christian identity banner or uh, the Christian nationalist banner. And Christian nationalism is again, something that is, you know, on the rise in this country again. Um, and so um, his reach was wide, right? His network was broad, right? But the, in fact, of the terms of just sheer numbers, it would still be considered a fringe movement, but it was definitely something that was a part of the American fabric for a solid, a solid 20 years. And it is still something that is, you know, as we can see, because the Aryan nations continued afterwards, there are currently three Aryan nations churches in Idaho. I know that there are uh, Christian identists, obviously in my own town, in my own neighborhood. Um, and again, when we look at how they're tracked today, Christian identists and neo-Nazis are tracked separately. I, I think that is, that's what's partly problematic, right? That's why I'm sort of going through my whole reformatting of, of, of how, we, how we label and classify these groups, because there is such a difference between somebody who supports Nazism from like an ideological standpoint, who believes, you know, that Hitler was the best thing, uh, the best leader in the world, that the Nazis had the right of it, and that they're using, uh, they just believe that all Jews are evil and need to be killed, right? There's a difference in how you track, talk to, uh, combat, and ultimately rehabilitate versus somebody who finds uh, Hitler to be a prophet, to Nazism to being biblically ordained, to uh, anti-Semitism not being racism, and that actually the followers of this church are the true inheritors of God, God's promise and, in fact, true Jewish people. They are the true Israelites, the true Jews. Those are two very different things, and to sort of lump them together under neo-Nazis, to me, is problematic if the goal is to understand, analyze, educate, combat, and rehabilitate. 
if that's the goal, which I think it should be, then these are two very different strands and they need two very different approaches. Now you would think that these two groups would get along, right? Uh, you would think so, but, and there is some bleed over. Like we know, for example, that George Lincoln Rock, I have, I have uh, you know, documented evidence that said George Lincoln Rockwell and Wesley Swift met in Washington, DC and Swift gave Rockwell money, hmm. right? Like I, I have declassified documents that suggest that. So did they get along? I mean, they work together, I guess, for some goal, but we also know that Rockwell, uh, uh, other uh, historians who have written about Rockwell have, have said that he point blank said, I'm going to use these religious fools to get my own agenda done. I don't believe in God or any of this other stuff, but I'm going to pretend like I do so that I can recruit people into my way of thinking. So they would uh, work together, maybe, but they will not believe the same thing. Do they do know that to have a broader goal, like create, for example, create a force right, or do they have a certain goal they're trying to reach, or do they just want to create create anarchy? Uh, it's definitely not anarchy, I would say, but it depends on the group you speak with, right? Like if we're sticking with this American Nazi Party, like the American Nazi Party that is mm. here today, yeah, no. it still exists, right? Uh, their goal is to Nazify America, to make America into I mean, the Fourth Reich was, I, I don't know which, uh, I know the Fourth Reich was a, was a, was a far right group that existed at least in the early 20th, 21st century. I don't know if they still do, um, but. Um, I mean, I'm really, whereas, I'm really, I'm really it, trying to recreate the Third Reich as a Fourth Reich in that sense. They want, they want, they, oh yeah, they, they want, their goal would be to, to again, like, to find a Hitler in America and follow that Hitler, whoever that may be, right? Have a, like, again, to Nazify, Nazify America, right? Or, um, whereas the guy, uh, the, the theology-based guys, um, they're, they're more interested in biblical prophecy. They're more interested in, um, like, for example, uh, a lot of Swift's followers, um, believe it or not, were very pro-Israel. Not because they believe that, you know, Jewish people homeland, but they believe that Jewish people needed to be rounded up and brought to Israel, right? So that they could all be the same place. So because when Jesus came back, right, all Jews were in Israel, that would be the signal for Jesus to return sword in hand and smite all of Satan's followers. And then the new millennium could begin. Hmm. Okay. Um, the guys, uh, these theological-based American Nazis, right? They believe they are the ones who know the truth, capital T truth, right? That the idea that what we've been taught, uh, you know, uh, throughout our lives uh, in Bible school or in religious training or just in anything, in church or, or wherever, is tainted, right? Because the idea that Jews play a prominent role in the Old Testament is a lie. Right. A lie perpetrated by the devil. All right. And this all may sound fantastic and insane. But the thing of it is, is that if you accept the one premise, if you accept the singular premise that Jews are the literal children of Satan, then everything else, no matter how insane it sounds, can be made to make sense. And one of the things that I found to be the most staggering in my research. Right. I mean, I combed through thousands and thousands of pages of swift speeches and sermons. And every time the man quoted scripture, he was accurate. Yeah. So he was accurate. 
right? He wasn't just making stuff up. I mean, there may have been a few words that were off, but he was accurate. Again, I'm not uh, giving any sort of praise to Swift at all, but the fact of the matter is, is if we just sort of look at these guys as, you know, uneducated, ignorant, dumb, whatever, then it's to our own, it's to our own, um, it's, it's a danger to ourselves because these guys are not stupid. They know what they're talking about and they know how to reach an audience. And that's why they continue to exist. They continue to thrive on the fringes of America and they look for certain periods like the 1950s and 1960s and arguably in the last 10 or so years to come out into the mainstream with very carefully worded messages to recruit individuals or to target uh, potential members and suck them in. And that's, and that's, that's their MO. And that's why it's, it's to our, it's to our detriment to sort of be like, Oh, French, who cares? Because they can affect us and they can affect the mood of the nation. That's for damn sure. And they so, have. So it's the 1960s, right? And the civil rights movement started to take off. So how does Swift and his group of neo-Nazis react to the 60s and the oh. civil rights movements? What they, are they trying they are, to do about it? Uh, they are vehemently opposed to it, right? Uh, he calls Dr. Martin Luther King and he like creates a word called a gypocrat, which is like some weird like gypsy money thieving whatever. He goes after Dr. King uh, like, like crazy, r r tries to rip Dr. King, goes after JFK, goes after Johnson for any of their civil rights um, uh, um, amendments or, or passages, goes after any of them for trying to claim that they deserve uh, to be equal with white America, white Protestant America, true America, who is also true Israel. Um, he doesn't leave the pulpit, but what he does is because of his disciples having such a broad range, such a broad reach, again, that's where we get into those individuals who actually could have altered the course of American history. He'll never come out and say, like Swift never comes out and says, Dr. King deserves to die, but he'll say, Dr. King uh, serves the Jew, and we all know who the Jew is really, uh, and the Jew is Satan, and what are we, and we are against Satan and we need to destroy the devil in America. So mm. he never comes out and says, go kill Dr. King. But if you draw the line from that, and if you're a, a supporter or a follower, right? Uh, so the civil rights movement inadvertently sort of bolsters Swift's movement, right? Because you have all of these, uh, you know, um, open and uh, outright segregationists who are coming out and saying these things uh, or, or anti-integrationists who are, who are coming out and, you know, campaigning against um, uh, civil rights or trying to overturn Brown versus Board of Education, whether it's through groups like the Citizens Council or the Massive Resistance Movements or whatever, you know, um, Swift is encouraging uh, his pastor, uh, his, his parishioners and his fellow pastors who he has trained to go out and preach about this and why this is dangerous and why we need to stop this. Now, we, it's, we all know that the 50s in America were kind of very, 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 very racist nation. But so was it easy for Swift to go on about recruiting in that era in the 50s? Because of the segregation and because of, this was before, right before the civil rights well, movements, right? 
I would say both yes and no, um, because uh, many Americans weren't predisposed to view Hitler favorably. Mm. All right. But um, on the other hand, the way that he uh, used communism and pushed the whole idea about communism uh, conflated with Judaism and because black people and from his perspective served Jews, that meant all black people were communists too, right? So by talking about anti-communism, like anti-communism, if you weren't anti-communist in the 1950s and the 1960s, it was a problem, right? I mean, that's the era of the Red Scare and the Red Scare doesn't end with McCarthy. It keeps going afterwards, right? Yeah. So um, interestingly enough, McCarthy actually called Swift crazy. That's, that should give you a level. So someone who's as crazy as McCarthy was actually called Swift crazy. Yeah. So, you know, um, but his ability to to use, again, things like anti-communism, protecting uh, Christian values, protecting the American family. Right? These are common tropes of, uh, of the far right. These are common tropes uh, of right wing extremists, domestic terrorist groups. And they, they work. Right. They work. Yeah. Um, but as far as when he would start proselytizing about how Hitler was a prophet, how Hitler was good and that, whatever, that would tend to turn certain people off. So it'd be one of those things where you would see um, in his sermons, more often than not, he'll talk about anti-communism uh, and uh, anti-integration. But he, he will still talk about Hitler and that Hitler was ahead of his time. That's one of the things he says, that the world wasn't ready for Adolf Hitler, right? So that's the reason why uh, we were against him, because the idea is from their perspective and Swift's predecessor's perspective is that it makes no sense why we would ally with uh, with our ideological enemies, the Soviets, against our racial allies, the Germans. It makes no sense. Right. The, the Soviets are the antithesis of America. So if we were to join with the Soviets and fight against the Nazis, there was someone pulling the strings. And by that point, it had already been well-established. Jews were the puppet masters of the world, at least within anti-Semitic circles. So that's what plays in here, and that's how it all um, – I'm not sure if I, if I answered your question. I feel like I yeah, deviated. Yeah. No, but uh, – and again, I, would, I don't know if this is uh, this is, this is not a similar question to the one I had in the beginning about Operation Paperclip, but – as you know, there were, were several Nazis that escaped to South America and Argentina, especially. Did they actually have a contact with those ex-Nazis as well, or did they just focus on America first? These guys, like Rockwell and his guys, were America. Mm. As far as I know, and um, again, I could be wrong, as far as I know, those uh, Nazis who fled uh, or, or got away um, from the Nuremberg trials and, and all of that did not have contact, did not influence the rise of American Nazism. All right. Uh, I mean, um, we do know that like, for example, Holocaust denial is not something that starts in America. I think it starts in France in like 1947, but it takes root in America in the 1950s. Right. Uh, and what, what's, this time, yeah. what's this time right. to Swift? Was the Holocaust denial times to Swift that it got so great? Well, Swift is not the one who starts it. No, no, no. Uh, but I mean, like, is, sure. it, is it because of him that it's become like this so huge 
did not hold his uh, I mean, he didn't. He didn't help. It's his predecessor, Gerald L. K. Smith, who coins it the hollow hoax. All right, there, there, there are two camps within Americanized Nazism with regards to the Holocaust. There's deniers, and then there's, uh, I guess, celebrators, like those those men who stormed the Capitol, who had the patch that said uh, 6MWE, 6 million wasn't enough, mm. right? That, that the Holocaust is incomplete and that we need to complete it, right? I mean, these are men who literally stormed, stormed the Capitol mm. still wearing that. So the idea about the Holocaust with regards to this Americanized Nazism falls into those two camps. Swift was a denier. Swift believed that all the photographs were, uh, were doctored, uh, that those were mannequins, that they weren't real people, and that all of, uh, and that his predecessor, Gerald L.K. Smith, says something along the lines of, like, there's evidence to suggest that all of the Jews who orchestrated this, uh, you know, quote-unquote genocide so that the world would sympathize with them actually fled out of Europe and were living in Manhattan, right? Does he have evidence? No. Uh, they, it was conveniently burned by Jewish, uh, you know, Conspiracers, you know, yeah, whatever, Jewish, you know, whatever. Mm. Um, so, uh, like Smith is the one who really pushes, uh, and Smith is the one who, because of Smith, Swift rises to prominence. Uh, um, but Smith is the one who coins the term hollow hoax, and it's from that in the 1950s that it sort of takes off. And it, um, I would imagine by the 1970s into the 80s when it really branches off into the whether it's six million is not enough or um uh holocaust denial or the holocaust wasn't that big a deal right there's a lot of that sort of a mentality around right now and that's mostly i think of a and that's look as someone who studies the people who think that the holocaust uh, either didn't happen or was incomplete um i find it to be like particularly abhorrent that um a lot of american high schools fail to teach the holocaust adequately you know, I, I find that to be particularly abhorrent and something that um, I seek to rectify, you know, in my own courses. Have you been to Auschwitz yourself? Or? I haven't. Uh, um, I, I had the opportunity to go to a concentration camp, but the problem, uh, and this is this was just me, is I know so much about what happened that I don't think I would be able to handle it. Mm. I honestly don't think. I think I would, I would break down and... Uh, I, I don't think I would be able to handle it. Um, I have been lucky enough to, to listen to and meet with several Holocaust survivors. Um, and a lot of their stories obviously still stick with me. It was um, emotional. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the stories that sticks with me to this day is, um, I mean, two, two stories is one of um, a woman um, who survived you know the three-day railway car you know into auschwitz mm. and about about an hour or two before they got there a woman gave birth in the rail car you know the packed the jam-packed car mm. uh the nazis walked in and took her baby away and that was it Oof. that's one story and then another story is is um this may have been the same woman but i i don't i don't remember but um it was towards the end of uh, 44 when the liberation was just just where it was starting and um a woman and her sister were herded into the chambers and they all knew what was going to happen and they were all on their knees and crying and hugging and praying 
And they started to hear sounds in the pipes thinking, okay, here comes the gas, but then water came out. Water came out mm. and for whatever reason, and like the next day or two, they were liberated. Mm. And that to this day still gives me chills. And that's something that I, you know, I, uh, I make sure to teach and tell all of my students at every point in time, because, you know, look, if the tagline of the Holocaust is to never forget, then it's on us as educators, especially given this age of mis, dis, and whatever kind of misinformation to provide education about this thing. Because if it's never, if it's, if the idea is to never forget and never let it happen again, then we have to be able to, to educate about it. We can't not talk about it, especially again, given the rise or the re-rise of people who are starting to question the validity of the Holocaust. I mean, I remember reading in the last couple of years, there were a couple of universities that were trying to push courses that um, the Holocaust didn't happen or why Holocaust denial is wow. feasible. Or, or, yeah, I mean, there's 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 all sorts of stuff. I mean, there's, uh, there's high schools like an hour east of where I live that tries to push that uh, migrant workers were brought here from Africa, migrant workers, not slaves, migrant workers. So, I mean, if we're not honest about our past, if we're not honest about the bad, I mean, look, um, I, I took issue with the whole make America great again slogan, because to me, America is great. What makes America great, what always makes America great, and what, is, what will always make America great is we actually have the opportunity at a higher level of education at our colleges to really be open and honest about our past. There's, not, there's a few countries, there's not a lot of countries who can be as open and honest about the past and say, yeah, we screwed up. We did this wrong. What can we do to fix about it? Mm. We are one of those countries where we can do that, right? Where yeah. you, don't learn, you don't learn from the past by saying, oh, we were awesome. Oh, we mm. kicked butt. Like we were the best. Mm. That's not how you learn from the past. You learn from mistakes, right? And yeah. I think part of the function of studying history is to acknowledge those mistakes, to acknowledge them so that we can learn from them and move forward. So I, wa I want to ask because how did... The Trump era must have been a great, I, I, I hate to say this, but great era for the neo-Nazis, right? Was, did, they love, did they love the Trump era, to, so to speak? It was, it, was, it was interesting, to say the least, because they, when he first came out and started saying the things he did, they were like, yes, right? They were like, this is right, mm. you know, this is absolutely. And it did grow. I mean, I, I think I, I recently heard the ADL say, the Anti-Defamation League say that, you know, uh, racist attacks, I don't remember if it was 2019 or 2020, like grew well over 100%, you know. Um, but this has been something, uh, the Trump era was more so, I would say, like the, the culmination of like the last 20 years, all right. Um, I think, uh, and this is my own argument and potentially a paper I'll write one day, but I would have to have some sort of political science or sociologist back me up. Um, but I think 9-11 fundamentally changed America. All right. And it makes sense. It's the second time this country was attacked by a foreign power, mm. right? Uh, Pearl Harbor being the first, and, you know, and look at what we did after Pearl Harbor. We took yeah. people who were even just remotely Japanese, like what was it, like one eighth and threw them in internment camps. Mm. All right. I think um, the heightened sense of fear, all right, of that other increased tenfold. And you see that, I think, dealing with um, uh, Islamic people during the Bush era, 
um, Latino Americans in the Obama era, and then pretty much every kind of other in the Trump era. And that's just, that's just the top billing of who we're afraid of. That doesn't mean all the other still isn't there. Um, I mean, I think if I remember right saying uh, something like Southern Poverty Law Center tracked um, something like an 800, 600 to 800% increase uh, in membership in white supremacy organizations under the Obama years. Wow. And that's, that's not because of anything Obama did. It's because of what he looked like and mm. who he was judged to be, right? The fact that we had a black president was a massive, massive progressive step forward for this country. It was mm. massive, massive, right? Huge thing. Yeah. And because it's a massive step forward, there's an equally massive backlash. And I would say that Obama would, has been one of the best presidents in modern history. And there, there are lots of people who share that. Look, that doesn't mean Obama is not beyond criticism. He absolutely mm. is. There's a lot of things he can be critiqued for. But he, no other president before him, maybe except for Kennedy, who is the first Catholic, right? But we, but you know, we know what happened to Kennedy, was charged with being anti-American. Mm. I mean, where we actually had to have his rival, John McCain, to his credit, stand up and say, uh, to people asking about, you know, how does he feel about Obama being anti-American? John McCain saying, you know, that's categorically false. You know, he's an American citizen. He's American. The fact yeah. that Obama had to go through that, the fact that supporters of Obama, the fact that the Obama White House had to deal with that uh, is a sign of the, well, the systemic racism, right? The capital S, capital R systemic racism that is endemic in this country, you know, from day one. Um, and it is something that bolstered these groups, right? It, yeah. it, it bolstered them because, uh, because main, uh, you know, mainstream politics, mainstream, you know, I mean, you know, whether it's Ted Cruz trying to say Muslim majority neighborhoods needed, uh, it, it was something to consider whether Muslim majority neighborhoods should be surveilled or, you know, anybody on whatever news channel saying, you know, terrorist lives among us or any of that stuff, or even pushing the deep state, the whole not the whole idea of a deep state reeks uh, of the international Jew, of this anti-Semitism, of this puppet master. So people who believe there's this shadow government, they might not know that they're parroting or uh, embodying an anti-Semitic, uh, a centuries old uh, anti-Semitic trope. But they are, right? Yeah. And that's sort of the point. Like, if you talk about the deep state, if you talk about uh, diversity being negative or the Latinization of America, like there's some statistics that say, like, what, by like 2040, Americans going to be predominantly Latino. That scares mm -hmm. the crap out of that demographic of people, mm -hmm. right? Or people like who call, who think white supremacy isn't real. It's a hoax, right? Yeah. You know, you can, you can stick your head in the sand to your blue in the face. And a lot of Americans do, right? And that's and that's 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 just true. It, it does happen, but that doesn't mean that just because you're ignoring it, it's not there. In fact, the fact that you are ignoring it is actually making the problem worse, right? It yeah. means that you're sort of in that that sort of systemic racism camp, right? Where you're complicit, right? Where if it doesn't affect me, who cares? Uh, right. And just one, and just one last question is uh, the 
with social media prominently mean being like TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, etc., etc. Is it easier for nationalist group like neo Nazism and uh, white supremacy group to recruit people from this oh, yeah. social, social oh, media? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. And it's through any number, through any, any number of things, whether it's, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Telegram, whatever. It's, it's just, yeah. Because, you know, it's uh, the anonymity of it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where, you know, the anonymity of it all is what makes it um, where someone can then, if someone is knows that they could be somewhat anonymous, then they can be quote unquote more honest about what they think, you know? So yeah, uh, the advent of the internet, uh, the explosion of social media and the continued explosions of social media, absolutely, right? And, and that's why, you know, this is, this is going to be a lasting problem. Um, but my fundamental belief is that the way to combat it is education, mm. open, honest education, or as honest as you can be. That doesn't mean without bias. It doesn't mean without with, uh, that somehow being objective is, is, is possible within the study of history because it's just not, right? But open discussion, being able to have these conversations with students, uh, with colleagues, you know, with the wider community to talk about it and not just talk at, right? That's the only way to sort of progress and move forward, right? To counter, you know, the student who says, oh, I read this post, right? Like already from the face of it, when you say I read this post already, it's like, all right, hang on a sec. You know what I mean? Like, hang on a yeah. sec, you know, being able to recognize what's a credible source, how to justify or how to recognize um, a credible source. And then even still, just because something, just because someone has a PhD, it doesn't mean you have to agree with them, mm. right? If you disagree, you just better be able to show that you have some evidence to back up what you're saying, and that evidence has to be credible. Absolutely. So we have to have these academic discussions, both at you know a professorial level, both as like an academic level, but also within our communities. Maybe like what we're doing now, you know, and certainly with with students for sure. At what at what age do you think it should, should we, we should begin teaching this? And like that, it doesn't matter if you're Latino, Black, Asian, or White, European, American. Yeah, I mean, it's look. It doesn't matter where you come from. If you're here, right? I mean, if you're here, if you're going for your citizenship, if you're if you're if you're living in America, you're an American, mm. right? Okay, if you're here. I mean, I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to get into the whole immigration thing. That's beyond my purview. But um, I think um, if you're asking when when should we start teaching this kind of history, like this more open history, I mean, I, I think it's got to be taught at a high school level. I mean, I, I when I when I was first starting to teach. Uh, part of the reason why I made a concerted effort at one of my schools to start getting Holocaust survivors to come to that school, uh, and I got about four or five to come, and I also got a new class created about uh, a learning community with one of my mentors who is the head of the psych department there, 
I got what, was the, what was the students' reaction to the Holocaust survivors coming? Uh, it's it's their minds are blown because the reason why was the reason why I did it was uh, I was talking about the Holocaust in class one day, and I mentioned Auschwitz, and you know a student raised their hand and goes, "What's that?" Mm. You know, I mentioned other major things like the Final Solution or you know uh, Joseph Goebbels or and again these students had no idea. And you know, on the one hand, you know, not kind of mind-boggling. It's kind of mind-boggling well, that they don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. On the one hand, you're like, well, you should know. But mm. on the other hand, it's 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 not on them, right? They weren't taught this, yeah. right? I mean, how often were you when you were 15? Were just like, I'm going to do some historical research on my own. Yeah. You weren't, no. right? So that was what brought my attention to this whole thing, and why why we started teaching this this history and psychology of the Holocaust class and why I started making it a semester thing to, to, for people to come, you know, and, and they did, and they were completely flabbergasted, you know, cause while I would show them pictures and while I would, uh, you know, tell them the history of it, that's me telling them about the history of it. A Holocaust survivor is telling you about their life and what they lived through. It is much different. It is much different, and the fact is, is that generation is is almost gone. Yeah. Right. And, and I want to ask about this. Do you think it will be? How do you think people will react to the Holocaust and to this when the last surviving people are gone? Do you think that it will be easier to deny this, or do you think that I think it it will be? I think, I think unfortunately, in the next like twenty or so years, I think we're going to see a lot more. Uh, questioning or iffiness about the Holocaust veracity because everything that you're going to get to see about survivors is either going to be secondhand through like the, the children of a survivor or it's going to be online and nobody trusts anything they see online anyway. Right. But we so got so, if it got, you have so much documentation though, I mean, there got so many papers and videos filmed by not by the Nazis that it should but, be. But that also, but that also comes to your, the, the, the in, enhanced distrust of anything media related, mm. right? So I think um, I think we're gonna I think we're gonna end up seeing, unfortunately, a rise in the very least um, a sort of apathy towards it, right? Yeah. And that again falls on us as educators to make sure that that doesn't happen. But you know, you can only do so much. There's a lead a horse to water thing, right? You know, I can't make them drink. Um, I I do it like say in my own classes, make sure I focus at least one week on the American perspective of the Holocaust. I mean, I teach American history, mm. but I can teach the American perspective of the Holocaust. And like, uh, I give my students an option uh, for the last week of the semester if they want me to lecture about my own research, which more often than not they take. And I actually just uh, just lectured about it yesterday you know, went really into Wesley Swift and, and all of that. And most students, their, their predominant questions is how is this stuff still around today? And the answer to that is it was never gone. It was yeah. never not here. The fact is, is that just because you're seeing it because of things that happened like on January 6th, because of uh, more heightened attention being given to it by, you know, uh, mainstream media outlets, be they online or, or television, um, just because you're seeing it more doesn't mean it wasn't always there. Mm. It was always there. It's just nobody ever paid attention to it. 
or only a select group of people paid attention to it. And it wasn't something of a national concern. Yeah. At least broad, at least broadly speaking, you know, I mean, to this day, what was it? The last, last year or so, the um, uh, FBI director said that something like 70, 75% of all domestic terrorist attacks in America are white supremacy groups. Mm. And yet when there's a white supremacy attack or there's a white nationalist or, or white racist attack, you don't label it as a terrorism. We, we don't. Because that's an, Islam, that's an Islamic thing. Right, because 9-11 fundamentally changed what the word terrorism, what the word terrorist meant. Mm. And now if you ask any American to close their eyes and picture a terrorist, they picture, and like, and I'm speaking very generally yeah. here, they, 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 they picture someone Islamic. And yeah. that's, that's statistically and categorically false. Were there Islamic terrorists in America? Yeah, are there? Sure. But predominantly, the number one cause we have of domestic terrorism. But then again, it becomes the question of, do you trust the FBI now? Mm -hmm. I mean, the last administration sowed some serious distrust with the FBI. And we had, a, we had a terrorist there. I don't know if you are aware, but in 2011, 22nd July, we had a terrorist attack here in Norway. And guess what? It wasn't a Muslim Islamic... Uh, it wasn't from the Islamic, Islamic terrorist group. It was a white Norwegian-born man who, mm -hmm. who did it. Yeah, I remember. And he was, he was reading all sorts of really, like, really horrible stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, his manifesto, if I remember right, was published. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think one of the guys, I think the guy who did the one in Australia actually read that guy's manifesto. Mm. You know, I mean... Again, originality, not a thing with these yeah. guys, you know, it, it is, it is an issue. And, and it's sort of like, and again, that's part of my whole thing about providing, I think, more um, appropriate, if we can call it that appropriate, uh, appropriate labels or studying things in more appropriate context, because until we can call it what it is, you know, yeah. until we have the proper, the proper name to label and analyze and contextualize and study it, you know, then we're just sort of like, I don't know, like firing in the dark, mm. you know, like we're not, we're not, we're not attacking the problem head on. We're just sort of, you know, just throwing a mass of possible things at it and just being like, okay, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's partly a lot of the reason behind, I think, um, why, um, it's essential to make sure that we um, have appropriate um, categorizations um, so that better analysis and study can be done. No, and that's that's part of what I'm endeavoring to do. Yeah. No, I I don't remember the exact quote, but I think, and I want to ask you about this, but because you said when the media denial and it don't be thinking Joe Rogan said something like it's going to be impossible two hundred years, five hundred years from now to label Hitler as a hero because we got so much documentation, we got so much footage and media documentaries, etc. That it's going to be impossible to document him as a hero five hundred years from now. But let's say there's already people yeah. doing it now. But yeah, but do you think that with the even with the media denial and the supremacy, do you think that if there is a chance that people might 500 years from now say that, oh, Hitler was a good guy? Do you think that's possible or do you think that's impossible? I mean, again, there's, there's already people doing it now. Um, 
And there's people who go so far as, again, there's, again, people who I study not only call him a hero, but call him a servant of God, mm. a prophet. But right? That's fulfilling yeah. God's prophecy. But if we're going, if we're forecasting like, to the future. In, in general, oh, revelation. Like, yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I mean, who knows? I mean, who knows which way the world is going to go? I mean, I like to think that there's signs that show the world is moving towards a more inclusive Right, I think yeah. one one of the um, small upsides to you know the pandemic is there is sort of uh, um, a notion that oh, we're all in this together, like we are a world. So there is sort mm -hmm. of I think there is sort of that sort of um, commonality that people are starting to show, mm -hmm. um, but. Uh, I don't, I, I, I would like to think, I mean, the best answer I can give you is I would like to think that that something like that would never happen, but who knows what the future holds and, yeah. and what's coming. So, um, I, I wish I could say conclusively hell no, but hmm. you know, um, because the thing about racism, man, is it's easy, mm -hmm. right? Racism doesn't require any logic. Racism is founded entirely in emotion. And emotions need no explanation whatsoever. They need no explanation. They need no justification. Right? Yeah. There's no logic to racism whatsoever. I mean, what? Like, we're 99% identical to each other genetically or something, mm -hmm. right? Like, doesn't matter your race, ethnicity, sexuality, religion, yeah. whatever. Like, we're human beings. We're all, like, made up of the same stuff. Mm -hmm. Right? I don't so know. Logically, yeah. racism makes no sense. I, I don't know the real number or whatever, but it's something close to that. I know we're like 70% identical to bananas. Mm. I remember that. But um, the sheer fact, I mean, that's the thing is that, again, if you're looking for like a logical explanation for why racism is so strong, I mean, there isn't one. It's, it's entirely emotional based. I right? don't know if you're aware, of, you probably are aware of Daryl Davis. Hmm. He turned around like 200 supremacists, non neo Nazis, oh, internal yeah. and external, which is really amazing. We need more people like yeah. him. Yeah. Uh, one of the people who have had the great pleasure to, to hear speak and actually correspond with is uh, a reformed white supremacist, Christian Picciolini. And he's got a whole movement, I think, called Life After Hate, a mm. phenomenal person. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's. I've also, again, had the, you know, uh, good fortune to be able to hear a lot of uh, people who were able to reform or, I guess, quote unquote, escape. Um, and it does happen. Yeah. It does and can happen. So um, what again, do you think that, that gets can, the whole what education. Think, what do you think it has to take to reform someone for, that is so deep into the neo-Nazism or white supremacy groups? I think, I think, first of all, understanding, again, that gets at that whole, you know, how were you radicalized? Was it because of, you know, Nazi ideology, because of the paraphernalia, because of that? Or was it because of the theology? Was it because of the, the religion, right? So you need to know which way. So analysis and understanding are essential. You need to know the person who you are talking with. Yeah. You need to know where they're coming from, okay? I think uh, compassion is an absolute necessity, okay? Because a lot of these people end up falling to this. Um, I mean, I don't know the statistics, but again, 
uh, out of the last like four reformed people who I've heard speak, three quarters of them began it because of some sort of personal trauma, whether emotional, physical, or whatever. Um, so I think, you know, uh, and, uh, recognition, uh, uh, mental health is an, an, an essential health that we all health and wellness that we all need to keep and monitor and be open with. And I think an understanding of, uh, the climate of, um, social political climate of America, of, the, the background of the individual and an understanding of the beliefs that this individual has adopted so that you know how you can have this conversation with them, right? Because right. again, if, if those of us who study this stuff, I mean, again, my, my goal in this as a historian is to, you know, to study, understand, analyze, write, you know, so that the work I do ultimately might be able to be useful to people who are seeking to uh, either combat it or help rehabilitate those. If, if my, if my uh, delineations and research and analysis can provide a better understanding to either law enforcement or, uh, or just anybody, or just, just, just historians, just so we better understand this, or just, just so we better understand this, then, then that's something I think is worthwhile. And I think that's a big part uh, of getting at your question that that's the way we combat this. And that's why education is so essential. You know? Thank you. So, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. It was a pleasure to have you on. And do you, do you have any social media if people want to find you or anything you wish to promote before you go? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Mostly is that's, that's where I'm most active. You know, my, uh, I don't really have anything else. My other social media, I keep hidden so my students can't find me. <laughs> so, yeah. What about yeah. you? Do you have anything you wish to promote or anything you want to me to put in the link in the, in the description? Um, sure. I mean, I, I'm, working on, um, I'm working on converting my work into a book, um, which is tentatively called like uh, Wesley Swift's and the Origins of American Neo, uh, Americanized Nazism. Uh, I also serve as a, as a research fellow for the American uh, Counterterrorism and Resilience Institute. Uh, and they do fantastic work tracking um, all forms of uh, domestic terrorism uh, in, in America and also uh, international terrorism. Um, so yeah, I would definitely, I would definitely plug uh, the American Counterterrorism and Resilience Institute for sure. Thank you so much for coming. This has been Well.H12. You can find us on Instagram under Well.H12. We are on YouTube as well under Well.H12. If you want to watch this podcast, you are also on an app called Stereo, where I not just interview historians, but also the people. I interview every time, everyone from four stars to wine tasters. So definitely check that out. Thank you so much for coming. If, and if you liked this episode, Definitely check some more episodes out. I think you're going to find something for your interest there. Thank you so much for coming. This has been that age 12, and I'll see you next time. There you go. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 